We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yeo Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hello. How's it going? It's going. August is almost over already. I know, it's pretty crazy. It's crazy. I feel like summer, like, just happened. I know. Like, it just started, and now it's like, LOL, bye. I know. (laughs) Everybody's talking about pumpkin things, and I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not. (laughs) So this is the third week Mm -hmm. of birthday month. Birthday month? 29. (laughs) And this week, we are going to be discussing the Bradford Sweets Poisoning of 1858. All right. Sounds horrific. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) It's pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. Information was pulled from the following sources. A 2022 Amusing Planet article by Kaushik Patawari. 2021 Atlas Obscura article by Jenny Elliott. 2019 AV Club article by Mike Vago. Vago? One of those. 2017 The Vintage News article by Ian Harvey. 2016 The Vintage News article by Brad Smithfield. 2012 Gizmodo article by Keith Viranese. Two 1858 The Bradford Observer articles, 1858 The Morning Chronicle, Historic UK article by Ben Johnson, On Yorkshire Magazine article, and Wikipedia. Nice. Very thorough. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok, of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. It's a known fact that a lot of things in the Victorian era could kill you, and one of the most popular was arsenic. Yeah. Yeah, it was really... Kind of in everything. Yeah. During that time. Even the wallpapers, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, they put it everywhere, all the time. Such is the case of an event that took place in Bradford, Yorkshire, England. On Saturday, October 30th, 1858, William Hardacker set up his sweet stall at Green Market, as he always did. That afternoon, workers from the nearby factories lined up at his stall to spend their wages on one of his most popular items, his zebra-striped humbugs. Mm. Humbugs are a hard candy, most often peppermint-flavored, and these sweets earned him the nickname Humbug Billy. Cute. There was, like, one source that called him Humbug Willie, and I was like, no, Billy. Billy sounds better. Billy sounds better. Humbug Billy. It just rolls off the tongue a little mm-hmm. bit better. You need that the bump of the bee mm-hmm. for that. That day, he was able to entice more of the workers to use their hard-earned money to purchase his latest batch, which was slightly discolored, so he offered a steep discount. Mm. 
By the time William called it a day, he'd sold five pounds worth of sweets. Not a bad day, right? Not a bad day, but it was discolored. <laughs> Little did he know what the morning would bring. Mm. The morning of Sunday, October 31st, All Hallows Eve, mm-hmm. slash Halloween, the deaths of two young boys, aged 9 and 11, was reported to the Borough Street Station. Upon initial investigation, it was believed that both of them had died from cholera, since there were no signs of foul play. Right. And that's usually like vomiting and coughing up blood and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a refresher, cholera is a gastrointestinal infection that can mm-hmm. cause nausea, vomiting, and severe or watery diarrhea. Arsenic poisoning causes the same symptoms, including right. severe abdominal cramping. Mm-hmm. However, as the day continued, more and more reports came in of sudden and violent illnesses in a number of households in the immediate area, as mm-hmm. well as more deaths. What had initially started as a strange case of cholera, which is typically caused by drinking contaminated water, kind of like mm-hmm. dysentery, right, had now spiraled into something else entirely. After interviewing people who had suddenly gotten ill, police officers noticed a pattern. All of the afflicted had recently purchased and eaten sweets from Humbug Billy. Oh, no. When they went to his house, they found him at home, also experiencing signs of illness after eating some of his own sweets. When asked about the origins of the candies, he told them that he had purchased his latest stock, as he always did, from another candy maker named Joseph Neal. Joseph, in addition to being a candy maker, was also a wholesale confectionery dealer whose shop wasn't that far from Williams and Green Market, located just a few yards north on Stone Street. Well, I feel bad. I, I, it's, I'm kind of glad that he didn't try. Like, he mm-hmm. wasn't the one that was trying to murder everybody. Because mm-hmm. he definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have eaten one. If he no. Had. No, he wouldn't have eaten some of his own stuff. Yeah. Okay. As a bit of a history lesson, in 1858, sugar itself was very expensive. So being a confectioner was a costly profession. Mm -hmm. Sugar was such a profitable trade that it was often referred to as white gold and highly taxed. Yeah, because it always had to be imported, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. In an effort to cut costs... Joseph would frequently swap out some of the sugar he needed for his sweets with something referred to as DAF. It's also been referred to as multum or flash, which was uh-huh. typically plaster of Paris. You're kidding. No. Nope. He put plaster in his candy. Mm-hmm. Well, typically they would, but in the case of Joseph, he substituted some of his sugar with powdered gypsum which, fun fact, is primarily used in building materials like drywall or as soil conditioner and fertilizer. Yeah. So poison. Straight up poison. Why, do you ask? Well, as I kind of alluded to, cost. See, a pound of powdered gypsum was only half a pent, or around 15 pence today, compared to sugar, which cost six and a half pence, or around two pounds today, for the same amount. How much would the DAF have been, though? What they were all using? How much was the DAF? 
Yeah. He, that was the half pence. Oh, I thought the gypsum might have been different. Yeah, but daff was like a general term for just something you would use in substitute of sugar. Like, typically plaster of Paris. That's so awful. That's so awful. No wonder they died all the time. Yeah. They weren't eating edible things. Mm-mm. Once they arrived at Joseph's house, they discovered his use of daff to reduce how much sugar he needed. In this case, he had used daff made from Derbyshire spar, which is also known as Blue John and is a semi-precious mineral consisting of fluorite. Now, depending on what grade was purchased, it could be used to make hydrofluoric acid, ceramics, glass, and fluoride, which is often added to drinking water and toothpaste to prevent tooth decay. Mm-hmm. So it kind of could go all over the spectrum yeah, as to how okay it would be if you ingested it or how like caustic and really, really bad it would be if you ingested it. Right. And even with fluoride, like you really can't have too much fluoride in concentrated amounts. Like He shared that he had mixed 12 pounds of his daff with 40 pounds of sugar, four pounds of gum, water, and peppermint oil to make 40 pounds worth of peppermint humbugs. This led the police to the Shipley druggist that supplied Joseph with the Derbyshire spar. So they're like following this breadcrumb trail. It's Yeah, so how many degrees has it been now? So So this this is now the third degree. The third degree. Yes. Okay. Druggist Charles Hodgson was only too happy to assist police in their investigation until he discovered that his assistant, a man named William Goddard, had made a fatal error when he thought he had given Joseph 12 pounds of daff from an unmarked barrel. Charles was horrified when he told police that the barrel's contents weren't daff, but in fact powdered arsenic. So he gave him 12 pounds of pure arsenic? Yes. And arsenic will make the same kind of substance like it'll thicken like plaster well it's it's a powder yeah but it seems crazy to me that the consistency would be the same you know i suppose it doesn't really matter if you're factoring like the gum because the gum is part of the process and that's the binding agent more gum because they thought it was different yeah holy shit so how could the two be mixed up you may ask Both the daff and the arsenic trioxide were white powders. Mm -hmm. The tale keeps evolving. As it turns out, Joseph, even though he paid for the daff, hadn't made the poison sweets. Instead, they had been made by another experienced candy maker he employed named James Appleton, who received the supposed daff from another of Joseph's employees, a man named James Archer. There's too many J names. I know. That's why I'm going to start using last names. Yep. Archer was, in fact, the one who had gone to purchase the daff on behalf of his boss on Monday, October 18th, 1858. Wow. All the way back then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Charles Pharmacy, which was located three miles away at Bailden Bridge, was being staffed by his young apprentice, William Goddard, since Charles was homesick in bed. No idea what he was sick with, but he was just homesick. He'll never be sick again. I can guarantee that. 
William had gone to check in with his boss about where to find the DAF after receiving Archer's order. He was told to tell Archer to come back another day, but Archer was adamant that he needed it today. Finally, Charles relented and told William that it was, quote, in a cask in a corner of the attic, end quote. Mm-hmm. Although some sources said it was located in the basement, the location and placement in this building is whatever. Either way, it was supposed to be in a barrel, in a corner. And if you're a stressed out apprentice trying to make a customer calm down, Mm -hmm. yeah. So either way, he scooped out 12 pounds of the powder and handed it to Archer, who dutifully took it back and handed it over to Appleton. So Appleton used the powdered arsenic, which he thought was daff, as he made the peppermint humbugs as usual. He failed to notice the discoloration of the candy, which was a little bit darker than usual. But he did fall ill for several days after completing the batch, experiencing vomiting and pain in his hands and arms. Yeah, because he was touching poison for yeah. probably, what, two, several hours? hours? Several hours. Yeah, making that candy. He even started to feel ill during the process of making the candies, but attributed it to some sort of stomach bug. Like he didn't start to feel ill until like the last hour that he was preparing Mm -hmm. the Yeah, probably when he was actually heating it up and making it more exposed to the air, the aromatics Mm -hmm. would have been more potent. So at that time, no correlation had been made. So the contaminated ingredients had continued to be used like normal. So this was all one big batch that was now being dried. So it could, like, be sold. William, so all the way back, the beginning, Humbug Billy, ever the shrewd businessman, thought Mm -hmm. the sweets looked different, which is how he negotiated a lower price from Joseph when he purchased 40 pounds of the Humbug sweets, taking them for seven and a half pence a pound instead of eight. So he saved himself half a pence per pound. There you go. This is how he was able to sell the candy at a reduced price and still make a profit. Mm-hmm. He was also one of the first people to sample the tainted humbugs and the second person to become ill after Appleton, the one who had made them. Mm-hmm. Of the five pounds he sold to customers that fateful Saturday, the humbugs came in packages of 10 to 12, which is why so many members of the same family were falling ill. All told, he sold close to a thousand pieces of deadly candy. Enough to kill 2,000 people. How horrible would you feel thinking that you just had a lucky break, you sold more than normal, you were going to have a good weekend, and you almost died and almost killed off all of your customers? Mm-hmm. Awful. Later Sunday evening, the district bellman went through the neighborhood waking people up with his cries about the dangerous candies. And by the time morning broke on Monday, everyone in the neighborhood knew that the candy had in fact been poisoned. That's really fast. Yeah. The detectives did a great job. Like, mm-hmm. And this was in London, right? It's in Bradford and Yorkshire. So I don't know how close to London that is. But, but still, like a busy enough town, a big enough town to have a factory in mm-hmm. it. Lots of people. Yep. So, I mean, that... They got down to it really fast. Mm -hmm. 
At that point, it was too late for the seven adults and 13 children who had already died after eating the tainted sweets. The youngest child that perished was 17 months old. All after experiencing, quote, great retching, vomiting, pain and burning of the throat, intense thirst, pain in the abdomen, and diarrhea, end quote. I don't know how the parents of that child could ever feed their kids anything that wasn't made from their hands ever again. Right? Like any of their siblings, if they survived, Mm -hmm. they would not touch anything that wasn't like Mm -mm. grown from the back of my own yard. Yeah. Made myself. Oh my gosh. The following week, the ill-experienced shop attendant, William Goddard, was arrested and facing charges in court. Somebody had to go down for it. During the trial, chemist Dr. John Bell and analytical chemist Felix Remington confirmed for the judges that the humbugs did, in fact, contain arsenic. Not only that, but each piece of candy contained 14 to 15 grains of it, enough to kill two grown men. Oh my gosh. So just one little tiny piece of candy. Each piece. Wow. In the November 11, 1858 edition of the Bradford Observer, they published a full-page collection of letters and the court transcript on the poisonings. One section was titled, quote, The Three Prisoners Committed for Trial for Manslaughter, end quote. A section of the article is as follows. And this is just, this was such a long thing. Like, it was an entire mm-hmm. page. So well, I just... yeah, like, everybody wanted to know. So it makes yeah. sense that they were just like, here, here is exactly what happened. And this was their local paper, too. So it would have right. for sure covered everything. But mm-hmm. this is just a small little snapshot. Okay. Oh, of the, like, four-page spread? Yeah, okay. of, like, the big spread. Yeah. yeah. Quote, at the borough court on Friday, Charles Hodgson of Shipley, druggist, his assistant, William Goddard, and Joseph Neal, confectioner of Stone Street, were again placed at the bar. The mayor said, having considered the evidence we have heard with great care, the bench are of the opinion that the whole of the three prisoners ought to be sent for trial for manslaughter. Mr. Lees asked if the bench would allow him to ask them to accept bail for his clients. Mm -hmm. The mayor said that the bench had agreed to accept bail for Hodgson in two sureties in 100 pounds or 10,000 pounds today and himself in 200 pounds, or 20,000 pounds today. And for Goddard, two sureties in 50 pounds, or 5,000 pounds today, each, and himself in 100 pounds, or 10,000 pounds today. Mr. Watson made the like application on behalf of Neil. The mayor said that the same bail would be required for Neil as for Hodgson, end quote. So quite a lot of money. Right, because they wouldn't want them to flee. Yeah, but they did end up posting bail, but none of them like left town or anything. Right, like, none of none of them ran they, away. No, because they need to. They need to atone. I guess. I mean, it's it's an unfortunate situation, but at that point, yeah. if you ran, you'd just look worse. You'd look guilty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the December twenty fourth, eighteen fifty eight edition of the Morning Chronicle. They published in part the following about the final trial on Monday, December 19th. Quote, the public generally would, no doubt, feel far more secure if, whenever life was sacrificed, 
it could always be discovered that someone was in fault and must be punished. But a jury must look solely at the facts before them, without regard to their accidental consequences or the collateral influences of the verdict they may put on record. On this principle, it was, we think, impossible to come to any other decision than was arrived at in the case arising out of the late poisonings at Bradford, tried on Monday at the York Assizes. The defendant there placed on his trial was Charles Hodgson, the chemist from whose shop at Ridley, it should be Shipley, the fatal drug was obtained. The circumstances are doubtless fresh in the recollection of our readers. Hodgson, it will be remembered, was ill in bed when Neil, the lozenge maker, sent a messenger to his shop for the substance which is variously denominated according to the scientific knowledge of the purchaser or the purposes for which it is required, sulfate of lime, plaster of Paris, terra alba, or daff. Some demure was made by the defendant to supplying the article, but the applicant insisting, defendant instructed his assistant, the lad Goddard, which the daff was like and where he could find it. It was a white powder and kept in a cask standing in one corner of the garret, which was used as a sort of warehouse or storeroom. Mm -hmm. As it happened, there was no barrel exactly placed in any corner of the room, and Goddard took 12 pounds of a white powder from another barrel which stood at the top of the stairs. That the powder was arsenic, that it was mixed by Neil in his lozenges, passed them to Hardecker's Sweet Stuff Stall in Bradford Marketplace, and was there sold to a multitude of persons, of whom 21 were poisoned, are facts with which the public are already familiar. In all these transactions, nothing like criminal negligence could be attributed to the defendant. Mr. Baron Watson, before whom the case was tried, remarked that even on the face of the depositions for the prosecution, no charge of culpable neglect could be established and the jury promptly returned a verdict of acquittal. The only negligence on the part of Mr. Hodgson was that of originally placing a cask containing deadly poison among a miscellaneous collection of other articles and accessible to every comer. But on the other hand, it must be taken into account that none of the articles were eatable, and he had no more reason to suspect that the plaster of Paris would be bought for consumption than the arsenic itself. Right. I bet a lot of people didn't know that that's what was happening to Mm -hmm. all of their candy. Yep. Especially with, what did he say, that one of the options was lime? Mm Mm-hmm. They put lime Mm -hmm. in certain candies. Yep. Sulfur of lime. Oh, my God. It is also to his credit that the arsenic left for general sale in his shop was not only carefully labeled, but so colored that it could not be mistaken for the rawest assistant or even or most ignorant purchaser. The real offender in this deplorable occurrence was, beyond question, the adulterator. The Bradford lozenge maker, of course, had no intention of poisoning his customers, mm-hmm. but he knew he was cheating them and ought to be made legally, as he is morally, responsible for the causality which converted his willful fraud into the higher crime of homicide. Against this particular class of offense, it is impossible for the law to be too strict and juries too inexorable. There cannot be innocent adulteration. Even the genuine death would be sufficiently deleterious deleterious? 
when swallowed in the liberal quantities offered by Mr. Neal to his fellow townsmen. Right. Still yeah. poison. All yeah. of it. It's yeah. still not good. Right. You're eating plaster. You're eating plaster. It does not appear whether the actual vendor was acquainted with the ingredients of which the doctor's sweetmeats were composed, but from their weight, opacity, and low price, he ought to have known very well that they could not be made of honest sugar. Mm -hmm. His ignorance, if he were ignorant, must have been willful, and his passive complicity in the fraud should be as severely punishable as if he had introduced the daff with his own hands. Yeah. The fatality by which so many persons lost their lives, and many more narrowly escaped a similar fate, could not have occurred if proper means were taken to prevent the manufacture and sale of adulterated articles. It is at this point where the evil begins that the legislature should interpose. Severe laws and sterner juries may possibly put a stop to practices which are felonious in intention, and as we have had frequent occasions to discover, become sometimes murderous in their consequences, end quote. Agree. I just thought it was extremely well written. Whoever wrote that, I was like, yeah. that's... Well, I, I feel like they would, have, they would have had to be really careful. I mean, this is, this is something where everybody could have gotten off scot-free because it was an accident, mm -hmm. or everybody could have been severely punished because it was an accident that caused several murders to occur, including mm -hmm. the murders of children. Mm -hmm. So it was a delicate balance, but I agree that the, the person you need to point fingers to is the person who wanted to put poison in it to begin with. Yep. It's still fucking plaster. My yeah. guy. <laughs> like, what the yeah. fuck? The magistrates of the case at York Assizes in December 1858 charged William Goddard, Joseph Neal, and Charles Hodgson with manslaughter by gross neglect. But the charges against Joseph and Charles were eventually dropped. As mentioned, William did face trial, but he did not receive a guilty verdict. Yeah. You might be wondering why. Well, according to the laws at the time, none had really been broken. Mm -hmm. In fact, William Hardacre was able to go back to selling confections after he recovered from his own brush with the poison sweets. Insane. When all was said and done, the arsenic-laced humbugs had caused the deaths of 20 people and made almost 200 seriously ill. I was able to find a list of the deceased in the November 6th, 1858 edition of the Bradford Observer, and they are as follows. Quote, Orlando Burren, aged five, and John Henry Burren, aged two. Elizabeth Mary Midgley, aged seven. Elijah Wright, aged nine. Joseph Scott, aged 14. Joseph Crabtree, it just said adult. Anne Shute, aged 38, wife of John Shute. Herbert Holdsworth, a child. John McCormick, aged four. Adela Lee, aged two. John Broadley, aged 21. Mark Green, aged 17 months. Mrs. Shackleton. John Lupton Constantine, aged 69. Mrs. Wright. Briggs Ramsden, aged 21. Robinson Wood, a child. And Thomas Wright, a child. End quote. The whole affair could have been prevented yeah. if the required color additive had been mixed in with the arsenic as dictated by the Sales of Arsenic Act. 
Some good did come from this tragedy, however. It led to the creation of the 1860 Adulteration of Food and Drink Bill, which regulated the way in which ingredients could be used, mixed, and combined. Mm -hmm. Years later, the UK Pharmacy Act of 1868 was introduced, applying more strict regulations regarding the handling and selling of a number of poisons and medicines by druggists and pharmacists. At the time of the Bradford Sweet Poisoning, acquiring poisons only required you to sign a ledger stating who you were and what you purchased. Following the Pharmacy Act of 1868, certain poisons could only be sold if the person who was making the purchase was known to the pharmacist or druggist, or if the pair were known by an intermediary. It was also required that any drug sold would be put in special bottles made from colored, textured glass to provide a strong visual cue to the contents and include the pharmacy's name and address on a clearly written label. Ye old Mr. Yuck. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't just the accidental or intentional sales of arsenic that were significantly reduced by the passing of this act. In its first year alone, opium death rates dropped by 30%. That's incredible. And also very sad. Yeah. And finally, the abolition of the dreaded sugar tax in 1874 meant that sugar was now more affordable for everyone. That's the real important one. Mm -hmm. No, I know the U.S. had a similar experience as well, and then it came to be that you could only have, you can only purchase poison if you were a pharmacist yourself, mm -hmm. which probably was not great for the vermin. <laughs> yeah, so I don't like, know if that's something where like they would have to, like, have a pharmacist on, on staff. Yeah, who like made it for them so they could use it. That's how I would interpret it, is that they had, they had to have a druggist on staff to make mm -hmm. the poison for them because yeah. they couldn't go out and purchase it. But I don't know enough about that to be able to speak 100% with authority on that. All right. That's ye my guess. Hey, ye old exterminators. Yeah. <laughs> you see this bottle? You see this colored bottle? <laughs> this is full of arsenic, my friend. <laughs> Dr. Yuck says No. <laughs> coming to get you. <laughs> if you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. Hey there, do you like spooky or maybe true crime? Well, on my podcast, Missy Mysteries, you can get a little bit of both. Most weeks, I focus on missing persons and unsolved cases, but some weeks, I have a little bit of paranormal stories, or special two-parters with a little bit of true crime and a little bit of paranormal, like the Lizzie Borden case. Check out Missy Mysteries every Wednesday, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And this week's podcast plug is, is the Misty Mysteries podcast. If you like true crime and the paranormal, Misty Mysteries is exactly that. Once a week, Keeley covers either a missing person slash unsolved case or a paranormal topic. Mm -hmm. Every true crime episode is made with respect to help bring awareness to these cases in hopes of bringing the victims justice. It is part of the Darkcast Network, and we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Mm. And this week's listener question is from our friends at the Yield Crime Out of Context. Twitter page, no, <laughs> Twitter slash X account. 
And they want to know, who do you relate to more? Pinky or the brain? Mm. My inner dialogue is the brain. Mm-hmm. But I am the physical embodiment of Pinky. <laughs> just kind of blumbering and like wants to do well and like hanging out, just having a good time. Doing my best. Just doing my best. But like internally, yeah, just worrying and, and trying to figure a million things out. I think I'm the reverse of that. I think I do, a, I can like. Outwardly project as the brain? Yeah. I feel like inside I am the brain or I am yeah, pinky and I am just like my brain is full of nonsense at all times of the day. Mm-hmm. And then I like outwardly present as the brain like, oh, I can I can figure this out. I can oh, survive I can this. Yeah. But inside I I'm can just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So what's yeah. something good you'd like to share? Well, actually, I'm kind of holding it. It's it's pretty cute, but my fiancé has been playing with resin, and I picked this Cubone mask. I just thought it was cute, and so mm-hmm. as like a thank you for making some delicious foods, I allegedly, so I made this breakfast quesadilla just because I, I wanted breakfast one day, and I wanted Taco Bell breakfast, and I was too lazy to order it, so... Mm-hmm. We had bacon, eggs, chipotle sauce, and some cheese, and I made breakfast quesadillas. And he's, he, like, anytime I bring it up, he wants it. Like, I could make it every single day for every (laughs) meal, and he'd be like, yes, please. (laughs) He remembered that I liked this, and he printed me this really cute cubone skull, and it's got, like, texture of, like, flowers and stuff. Oh, I saw that, yeah. And so it's really nice as kind of a pseudo-fidget toy. To like play with the different it's like a mm. pokemon sugar skull yeah but i don't know what what i want to do with it yet it's not like fully cleaned off but i might uh, paint it or something i don't know he gave this to me and he was just like, i was just thinking of you like thank you for making Aww. good food and i was like oh so it was just a really nice simple gesture i wasn't expecting so that's my good thing how about nice. you Last week was your birthday. Yes. Mine is similar in the instance of it involving my significant other. I had asked for a new watch for mm-hmm. my birthday. And way, way back when Thomas and I first started dating, he introduced me to Fossil Watches. Fossil is a brand. I remember that. For people mm-hmm. who are unfamiliar with Fossil. And Fossil was so out of reach for you yeah. guys at the time. Yeah, it was it was expensive, man. Yeah, you were not fossil fossil salary people at the time. <laughs> yeah, college kids can't always afford fossil unless they're unless unless they're misusing their student funds. Yes. So I had requested a watch that reminded me of one that belonged to our late grandmother. <laughs> she had a very unique style. Yes. And so I asked for this fossil watch, which was very reminiscent of the one that she had. Mm -hmm. And when I took it out of the box, Thomas said, you know, turn it over. And he had had it engraved with the phrase, no fog. And that is significant because when we first started dating, I was coming fresh off of a relationship with someone who cheated on me all the time. I'm not Mm going to name names. They know who they are. 
And I don't want to give them that power. Yep. So I had trust issues. <laughs> Surprise. Mm-hmm. And one thing I used to say every day that he would go back to his apartment, which funnily enough was literally across the street from my apartment. Right. I always said that it felt like he was going to disappear into the fog. So he would leave his fossil watch at my apartment, knowing that if I had it, I would have to see him the next day to give it back to him. Mm. So no fog became this thing as like a an assurance, like I'm not going anywhere. I'm not disappearing. I'm not going to wade into the fog and disappear forever. That's a very sweet thing. I didn't know that. Yep. I'll be jealous. Yeah. So that's my good thing. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised by something... Sweet from many moons ago. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Yeah. Crazy. All right. On that uh, touchy-feely note, let's shut her down. All right. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, Become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. A great way to support the show, if you can't do so financially, is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, or Audible, or really kind of wherever you can leave us a rating and review. <laughs> DoorDash. <laughs> DoorDash. They're the best. They're the best. And if you want to have it read on the show, send us a screenshot. Yeah. And we will read it. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.